0: Welcome to Reverb, everybody. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Calvin Pollack. How are you doing, Alex? I'm doing pretty well, Calvin. And today, we are very fortunate to be speaking to Doug Culture, a graduate teaching assistant in English at Penn State University. His research focuses on the history of literacy in American mass movements, considering the ways that pedagogies of reading and writing shape political demands and advance or hinder campaigns and causes. Doug, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here. So just to get us started, so your research focuses mass movements and kind of uh, Mm -hmm. other things like that. And so you're interested in kind of like labor politics in in a general sense, at least, right?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, social movements, writ broadly...
0: So what we wanted to talk to you about today, because you also have, uh, in addition to studying this as, uh, as an academic venture, you've also been involved in some labor organizing campaigns yourself. So the first question that we wanted to ask, just kind of right off the bat, was why are labor unions important for workers? What function does a union, at least in your mind, serve in a workplace? Why is this something that we should be, as workers, we should care about it?
1: Well, so, I mean, that's a big question, but it's a really important one. I think, you know, there's an ideological answer, which is that, personally, I think decisions in a workplace should be made collectively because they concern the people who work there. But, I mean, practically, there's a whole lot of answers. Unions are responsible for securing some of the institutions that we really cherish now, like The weekend. You know?
0: Right. The eight hour Absolutely. Day, I right. love that weekend. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you know, there's those that have been achieved historically. But even now, you know, we see unions that are able to push for better wages. On average, workers at universities with unions tend to have higher pay than those who don't. So I think maybe bringing those two strands together is, you know, workplaces aren't perfect. Things are going to go wrong, even if for the most part, you might have a really good relationship with your boss what the advantage of a union is in that situation is that there will be somebody on your side no matter how nice your boss might be or how friendly you know the company culture at wherever you work might be when there is a dispute it's going to become very clear where loyalties lie and really only a union is going to be a full and total advocate for you free of any sort of conflict of interest that might be presented by like an hr rep or an ombudsperson or whatever so it There are very few steadfast allies that workers have, and that's maybe the most important reason because everything else flows from that.
2: Yeah. So, Doug, I guess I mean this might be sort of obvious, but just to lay out like the state of play for unions in workplaces, you know, why do you why do you think it's the case that bosses are so averse to the idea of bargaining with unions? Why why do bosses oppose unions with so much vigor. I mean, there have been a lot of examples of companies that have sort of made these overtures towards providing basic security for basic material needs for their workers voluntarily. So if, if there are workplaces that are offering things voluntarily, why would they be opposed to an institution like a union that more or less lays out what those material needs are clearly uh, to bosses.
1: Well, I mean, the, the short answer, I think, is that it's about power, right? It's funny. Anytime a new union drive starts up and you start seeing about it on Twitter, uh, I think most recently this happened at BuzzFeed, which is trying to organize. Right. The boss of BuzzFeed trots out this old sawhorse of a line in, there, in a statement and you see it at universities, you see it at newspapers, you see it everywhere there's an attempted organization and it's the old unions for the, but not for me line. Yes. Everybody supports unions in the abstract or thinks they're you know valuable. So lip service is always paid, but the instant the question becomes about a union at your boss's workplace, the tone changes pretty quickly. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that it's not hard to figure out that Bosses are there to serve the interests of capital. They manage labor, but sometimes managing labor means cutting benefits, cutting hours, or extending hours, cutting pay. There's unpopular decisions that have to be made, and only a union's really going to stop that. A union is going to be a block to preventing those sorts of changes from being made at the whim of an employer. Yeah. So I, I think it's no surprise why bosses might you know, recognize they're good in the abstract, but, you know, that all seems to change once it becomes a question of, you know, their life.
0: Yeah, I I, I really appreciate that you made that distinction between, you know, of of interest and of power, right? Because, you know, what you're saying here is that, you know, bosses at the end of the day, you know, to a certain extent, you know, they don't want their workers revolting or, you know, like coming uh, and anything like that. But at the end of the day, what they are most beholden to is, as you said, capital. It's to, you know, basically like uh, the profit motive or in some cases a whole bureaucracy that is above them, um, that is the sort of dry, driving towards that profit motive at the expense of employees, which is something that I don't think, I think that might be a, a hurdle sometimes to people's understanding. So, I mean, there was kind of another dimension of this question that I, I'm sort of asking it for selfish reasons, because I also have friends who are right now actively engaged in workplace organizing campaigns at their own workplaces. And One of the things that they tell me so often is that it's sometimes even difficult to get rank and file employees on board to you know join the union especially if you're in like uh, my friends come from Wisconsin which is a right to work state so you, well now so, it is well now it is yeah exactly it, uh, boy we've had some glory days but long past um so not everybody in the in the workplace is part of the union And the bosses use that often as a sort of dividing tactic where, you know, they will give these kind of like, you know, these little pithy benefits to the people who aren't in the union uh, to kind of dissuade them from joining it. But I, I guess in your minds, how would you make a good argument to a rank and file employee who uh, you know is kind of reluctant to join a union because they don't you know they see it as being you know too divisive or antagonistic or you know hey you know the boss is is offering me these sort of nice little you know is dangling you know kind of a carrot in front of me if I don't join the union you know what warrant should I uh, have to actually join into this thing?
1: Well I think the first thing that is worth pointing out is that to say that bosses serve the interests of capital obviously is to dip into a certain, Worldview, a certain way of looking at things and i mean rhetorically speaking that's like uh one of burke's terminist extremes right right certain things become visible but you know it also obscures things yeah and what i think you know saying bosses serve capital obscures is the fact that management bosses you know the, the head of your department if you're at a university whatever all they want is for things to go on without a hitch so that's to say they want what is easy. And typically, negotiating with a union makes their lives more difficult. I can imagine that if there was an alternative to negotiating with a union that was more difficult, they would turn around pretty quickly and they'd be very willing to organize or permit their employees to organize. Ah, uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that the opposition to a labor union or to collective bargaining is not... Probably not categorical, but it's a matter of making the alternatives, you know, significantly more of a headache for bosses. Now that said, I mean, the, the difficulties of getting, you know, rank and filers, even some of whom, you know, might be pretty progressively minded or well disposed towards unions in the abstract. I think a lot of times people just are not really sure what that means. Yeah, There are pop culture images of unions that associate them with corruption or cronyism. Mm-hmm. And in the case of universities, they get associated with, uh, you know, a blue collar type of workplace, nice. which a university is, you know, different from in a lot of ways. Mm. This is all to say that there's a lot of groundwork that has to be done, I think. And in some cases, people will be on the same page. Other times, they may just not even know. And I know, in my case, that's easy to forget. I grew up in Pittsburgh. My family has a real strong union tradition. So I always just sort of knew what unions were, why they were good, what they do, what it means to be a member. And that made it a little disarming when a coworker who was from the South, you know, before even I got into explaining why signing a card is important, he first asked me to explain to him what a labor union is. And, you know, I was mildly taken aback. I was able to answer the question, of course, but Mm -hmm. if you're not able to sort of explain it from A to Z, it's going to be hard to get people to sign on to something they don't understand.
2: Yeah. So we may have listeners who fall into that camp. So if you had to give an abbreviated A to Z response to that question, what would it be?
1: Sure. At the most basic level, it's a bunch of people in the same workplace who are all on the same page, more or less. So that's to say, you know, if your office is too hot during the summer and too cold during the winter, you know, you might go to your department head or your boss or whatever and say, man, you know, it's it's way too hot. You got to fix the temperature in this office. And it's possible that your boss might say, oh, yeah, sure, we'll get right on it. But it's just as possible that they will not do anything about it because you're one person of however many in your office. But the principle behind a labor union is if you get everybody in your office to all go to the boss at the same time and say, you got to do something about the temperature here. We're, you know, sweating our asses off. (laughs) Then you can be pretty certain your boss isn't going to listen or at least give a second thought to your request. So, I mean, it, it might be a cliche to just say strength in numbers, but that's effectively what it is. There are, you know, of course, points beyond that, such as like the question of striking and the role of labor to, you know, the larger business of producing whatever it is your workplace produces. But at the most basic level, you know, even before you get into bargaining and contracts and benefits and all these things, a union is just a bunch of people acting collectively to, uh, you know, take care of their shared concerns. So in some senses, you know, it's, it's to say that, the union principle is kind of an extension of, you know, the feminist slogan, "the personal is political." Now, I, I think that that applies in the sense that, you know, everybody has some sort of gripe with their workplace. Nobody's totally happy all the time. But what most people don't realize, and I think this is especially true in workplaces like an academic department, and you know, you're a PhD student who's pursuing their own research agenda. Most people don't realize that you know the static they have with their advisor or their concerns about having to stretch their summer stipend to pay for food, there is a very strong tendency to individualize those problems and make them about the worker themselves. But if everybody in the office is having the exact same problem, it's very hard to say that it's an individual one. It's a collective problem. And collective problems admit of collective solutions. And that's what unions are for.
0: That's great. I
2: like that. Yeah, no. So the way you brought in feminism as an area of overlap with labor organizing, and just kind of the overall narrative presence of what you just said kind of speaks to the fact that you are an academic studying this from a rhetorical perspective as a an area of rich intellectual interest. So why do you think that People in rhetoric ought to be studying labor organizing as an instance of, let's call it, social movements rhetoric or public policy rhetoric, things of that nature.
1: Sure. I mean, at at some level, I think that, you know, we can go all the way back to the very origins of rhetoric, you know, insofar as social movements are trying to affect policy, make changes on issues that concern a larger, you know, political body. I mean we can go all the way back to the sophists right yeah they were training people to speak in the assembly if you wanted to participate in public life you had to have some degree of you know rhetorical ability Mm -hmm. so that may be you know not true in the same way today but it certainly is still true in certain ways right at the most basic level organizing is about coordinating efforts and persuading individuals to do a certain thing or see things in a certain way or get them to show up for a certain, you know, event or you know action whatever it is. So when we start to look at organizing as a rhetorical matter, but also rhetoric is inherently tied to organizing and moving things around, mm. there's a really rich tradition there from the sophists going forward to the trade union movement, the worker colleges of the 30s, the political education efforts of a lot of radical groups today i mean it, it really goes all over you can look at party newspapers you can look at social media i mean so to say that you know there's even such a thing as you know social movements rhetoric or political rhetoric it, right. it would seem to be kind of uh, a misnomer because everything is sort of all t- tangled up together
0: yeah, that action itself is, like, inherently rhetorical, and I think you're right in pointing out that we can, you know, chart the ways in which this is this pops up all the way, you know, across the rhetorical tradition. And, yeah, I'm always very kind of fascinated in the way that, you know, rhetoric as a discipline of study has in many ways, you know, always been kind of, you know, we don't often, you know use concepts that are commensurate with labor organizing, you know, terms like like solidarity and things like that. But I mean if we, you know, we can make a lot of bridges, I think, between like Burke's identification or like other kinds of concepts oh, yeah. from yeah, from rhetorical theory where we're talking about how to like get people to recognize uh to just in general like have a common thought or to be able to under have a common sort of understanding, you know, census communis of some kind about our sort of shared problem. And then, you know, that sort of deliberative function of rhetoric, too, that extends all the way back, as you said, to teaching people to speak in the assembly, uh, how to be a citizen in the polis, how to teach people like what to do with that understanding and uh, and make arguments mm-hmm. about the future that we the kind of future that we want to see.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's not just the rhetoricians, you know, that can get in on the fun. This is just as much a history of composition pedagogy, too. Yeah. You know, you can go back to Highlander school where... Participants were trained in, you know, certain aspects of composition pedagogy so they could write for shop papers. Mm. You can look at the Bryn Mawr Summer School for Women Workers, where female factory workers were assigned to write essays about their job. This also involved creative writing, drama mm. writing. There's a really, you know, strong tradition of using the toolkits of rhetoric and composition for you know, not just teaching people about politics, but also
2: teaching them how to do politics at, you know, a really basic level. Yeah, and even even teaching them how to communicate in the public sphere. I mean, if you think about, like, comms comms workshops that that the DSA is running nowadays are are very much composition pedagogies.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that it's important to note the ways that All of these programs have slowly changed and tweaked themselves and altered themselves over time to suit the changing mechanisms of governance. So, it's probably not as necessary for activists today to be able to give an eloquent speech in the assembly where they lay down arguments, just because that doesn't seem to be the primary mechanism for exerting force anymore. It seems to be a lot more diffuse. So... You know, I I think that there are fascinating questions to be asked, like, is there like a pedagogy of composition for tweets? Do we have to understand the algorithm as part of composing, you know, political rhetoric for Twitter? Mm -hmm. It would seem the answer would be, you know, yeah, kind of. But those are obviously way off the radar of, you know, most first year writing classes right now.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think, and and this is actually this is dovetailing really nicely into something that we wanted to ask about. That I think is specifically related to the work that you do, which often involves the study of literacy, right? Because that seems to be an important concept in all the things that you're talking about. What you're talking about here, you know, whether it's composing tweets or wh- any other kind of you know social action that you know goes beyond speaking in the assembly, we're talking about a multitude of different literacies uh, that people are sort of. Pre- so, could you talk a little bit about? In what ways is it useful to define a concept like literacy for people working in rhetoric as a discipline, as well as those outside of our discipline? And why is literacy such an important concept to understand when we're talking about things like you know doing politics, doing labor organizing, and uh, and other things like that?
1: Yeah, so that's that's a really important question, and unfortunately, it's one that really only has a negative answer because there is just a boatload of scholarship that is working through the question of, you know, what is literacy? Is it one thing or can it be multiple things? Can we distinguish, you know, oral literacy from, you know, written literacy, from digital literacy, from information literacy? So there's just this astounding proliferation of models, but I'm not interested in, you know, picking which one seems to be the true essence of literacy so much as recognizing What a lot of literacy scholars do, which is that there are many different kinds of literacy and they tend to be socially situated, which is to say, there is no autonomous, you know, objectively defined single unitary set of skills, right? In the West, we mostly talk about being able to read written text and express one's thoughts through writing as, you know, the essence of literacy. But we also know that there are cultures that have a much stronger oral tradition or a pictorial tradition. So it would be strange to say that culture that has different rules for expressing information or expressing ideas was not literate. It's just a different way of doing the same thing. So, you know, in in social movements, I think that literacy is useful as a frame because it can capture all of the competencies that a successful organizer or a successful activist is going to need. Some of those are rhetorical. Others are bureaucratic or administrative, being able to, say, like, pull governmental records. You do have to know how to read, of course, but that in itself is not sufficient to say that you're, you know, literate in the sort of bureaucratic context. You also have to be able to know, like, how paper moves through institutions, where records are kept what you're allowed to see, how you can, you know, maybe skirt that or, you know, fudge things here and there. So, you know, it's just this massive complex of different abilities and competencies that are required. And in almost every case, there needs to be some pattern of sponsorship or some sort of organized pedagogy to transmit those skills.
0: I guess I, I just want to really quickly, and feel free to shoot this question down if you don't want to answer it. But um, <laughs> do you do you feel like the university is an adequate place to teach those kinds of skills, or do we need to be, or, or I guess if failing that, what other venues are are adequate sites for a pedagogy of that kind? Like, where do we learn about these kinds of skills?
1: Right. So that's a really good question, and it's a tricky one, right? Particularly in An era of, you know, campus wars, cultural discourse, and professor
2: watch list and all these things. Yes. You know, it... it, The no platforming of noble truth tellers. uh... (laughs)
1: Yeah, David Frum, uh, Jonathan Chait, just the the luminaries of our era. I, I think that, you know, there is absolutely a way to be building these competencies But I think that there has to be a bit of work of translation done. So the the example that I like to give is, you know, if I go into one of my classes and start talking about surplus value theory and the wage relation and the working day and the mode of production and use value and exchange value and all this stuff, one, that's going to be just dead on arrival because it's pretty dry stuff. But two if you go in and say you know the m word marxism students have and people in general have a sort of pre-scripted reaction right right and that might be good it might be bad it's probably a mix of the two sure but they know how to respond to that and so it's just sort of this abstract thing yeah but if you go into a class and ask your students like okay so let's consider the the football team how much money do you think this team makes for the university and inevitably they'll say oh I don't know but it's a ton and then if you ask them like so do they get anything in return for that labor mm-hmm. and students will say well you know they get scholarships and they get you know swag from the school and stuff and if you represent that to them on the board they recognize that there's a huge margin That is a value that is generated by the players, Mm -hmm. but they are not getting. And when you put it in those terms, you don't have to say surplus value. You don't have to be talking about Marxism as such, Mm -hmm. because you're just referring to things that, you know, are in their everyday life. And are already sort of part of their worldview and their sort of structure of care. Yeah. So when you do that, you know, you can do some really incredible political work. But it's only if you're willing to make a run around the very sorts of familiar scripts.
0: I, I love that example so much. And I'm really glad that you brought that into this because, I mean, especially, I mean, working at a place like Penn State, you know, you're really mm-hmm. meeting students where they are because that's, you know, just something that's at the forefront of their of their everyday lives. Yeah, that
2: that's kind of the key strategic insight of what you just said is is meeting students where they are, that it's it's not precluding having these conversations or, you know, excluding them from your pedagogy, but that they have to be approached where students are and mediated through their experience. Yeah. And
1: I, I think that, you know, this is something that is widely recognized but rarely practiced or, you know, difficult to remember because. You know, for every course that, you know, you teach as a PhD student, you have course objectives, there are certain deliverables that you're supposed to produce at the end of all of this, you want to get the teaching evaluations out, Right. Uh, in a lot of cases, you just want to get the damn grading done, um, <laughs> Yes. but, you know, foundational texts in education emphasize that your job as a teacher is not to like, you know, meet out information and deposit it in their heads. You know, that's what Friere takes as his whole starting point. That's the basic object of
0: his criticism, the banking banking. model of education. Yep, exactly, exactly.
1: So uh, I think that, you know, to approach doing any kind of, you know, political work or, you know, trying to challenge the uh, priors of students, to approach that as like, A matter of banking like you're going to take this body of theoretical knowledge or this view of the world and you're just going to put it in front of students and hope that they absorb it through osmosis or something like that Mm. that seems to be doa to me as well and it definitely does not embody the sort of egalitarian spirit that's needed if you want to help foster capacities for collective action
0: Which is why I think that's, yeah, the concept that you brought up earlier, translation, is really a useful one to think about there, too. You're not just, you know, depositing, uh, as Freire would say, uh, you know, this sort of preformed knowledge into students' heads, but rather you are actually, like, transitioning, or well, yeah, translating. There's no really better way to say that. Helping students assimilate that knowledge into their already established knowledge frameworks by using, you know, starting at the level of everyday experience.
1: Right. And I I think the the important but admittedly really subtle difference is that, you know, when I talk about Penn State football, it's not like I'm trying to, you know, water it down or bring it down to their level. Right. I'm not, you know, just like trying to think about what the kids like. But because I'm at Penn State, I live in State College. Penn State football is something that is also part of my life, you know. So that's something that, you know, even though I, I'm not crazy about this word, I feel like I can authentically talk to them about because, you know, the, on certain days, you know, I come in to class and I say, ah, so who's excited for the game this weekend? Or did anyone watch the game last week? So it, it's not just a matter of finding an example they understand. It's about finding a way to take this sort of abstract concept and identify where it's operating in the sort of world that you are both sharing in that moment.
2: So Doug, this overall topic of organizing and building a union, for you, this has not just been either an academic pursuit or a pedagogical model. I mean, you you yourself were involved in the efforts to organize a grad student union at Penn State, right? And And so we definitely wanted to ask you to just kind of tell us what that experience was like, and maybe any insights that you gained, perhaps even feeding back into your pedagogy and your academic work?
1: Yeah, sure. So I came in to Penn State in the fall of 2015. And Things had already been sort of brewing for a while at that point before I got there, but it was only in my first year or so that the campaign proper really kicked off. And by campaign, I mean, you know, the march towards eventual election on unionization and recognition, you know, from the state. Right. So, you know, I arrived at graduate school and... At first, I was just sort of trying to get my bearings. You know, you you start your master's degree, and there's a lot of things you have to figure out pretty quickly. But shortly after that, I began to get involved, and the way that I started to get involved really was, you know, through canvassing, two-hour shifts. You know, we would walk around, ask people to sign union cards, talk to them about what the union is. So I did a lot of that over the summer, and... You know, it, it's funny because when I first mentioned this to my mother, who was an attorney for the National Labor Relations Board for, you know, <laughs> most of her career, yeah, she said, you know, you should think real hard about getting involved because if you do, you know, it can take over your whole life. Yeah. And at the time, naturally, I thought, mm, no, I'll be fine. And then, <laughs> sure enough. I found it taking over the better part of my life, and I was happy to do it. But I think it is very, well, put it this way: I, I think it might be near impossible to really explain what what an incredible load that is. It it is r- a really difficult thing. Yeah, to organize, you know, an entire university's graduate student population. So I did not have really any organizing experience before this. So I threw myself into the deepest water that I possibly could, I guess. And, you know, unfortunately, we did not end up winning the vote. But, you know, I'm really proud of what we were able to do. There were some concrete victories we scored along the way at the department level, Mm. and... Throughout the whole campaign, there really was a developing, very organic community, yeah. you know. When people go through their PhD program, it's so easy to never talk to anybody outside your department. Oh, yeah. um, But being involved in the union meant that you met people from, you know, all over. And so you, you start to care about the university as such in a different way than if you are only talking to people in your department. So I think that the lessons for that, you know, for me, one was that I was maybe not ready to, you know, chair a campaign like that, but it definitely, you know, just produced in me an immense respect for the people who have done it, continue to do it, and, you know, will do in the future. Pedagogically, I think, you know, part of the lesson is that Oftentimes the most important thing that an organizer can do is just to shop and listen mm. and provide support. When you talk about organizing a union, there I think can be a, a sort of like vanguardism or a sort of administrative capacity implied by that word. Yeah. You know, you're organizing, you're you're deciding where everything goes right. and putting everything in its right place. So it's easy to feel like it's some sort of supervisory role, but, you know, having gone through this thing, I think maybe one of the most important things that I've learned is that a good organizer is really going to not cheer from the sidelines, but also not be center stage. You're talking to people, listening to what their problems are, talking with them to figure out what sort of solutions they think would be appropriate and then doing what you can to help them succeed in achieving that end. Now, sometimes that may line up with, you know, your vision of the way the world should be. Other times it won't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the work of political education in some ways is to help people understand how you know, certain solutions or ideas are the best answer to problems. But at a certain level, you know, if everybody in a workplace says, we have this particular problem and we think this will be the best solution, you know, you as an organizer can't go in and say, no, actually you're all wrong about your own workplace. Yeah. Right. I think if there's a rhetorical lesson here, you know, and on this point, I'd be remiss if I didn't come out strong for Team Penn State. It's probably got a lot to do with, Cheryl Glenn's concepts of rhetorical listening and rhetorical silence. Right. A huge part of the organizer's toolkit is just being able to communicate, you know, a sense of care, empathy, attentiveness, because effectively all you're doing is, you know, learning about other people's lives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really glad that you brought up Krista Radcliffe's and then Cheryl Glenn, I think, yeah, talks about this too, rhetorical listening and using that as a method of, you know, forging communal bonds, right? I mean, I think that's really one of the more powerful upshots of what that work can really do for us in real life is to help, you know, decenter ourselves and actually start thinking more in terms of, Okay. what are what is everybody else's interests here and in what ways can I function to help, you know, sort of bring about a better a better world for all of us? And I mean, to that end, uh, one of the main things that we kind of wanted to talk about here, too, and I think this actually goes very nicely with what you just said, because, you know, in a lot of ways, you do have to listen across difference in order to arrive at, you know, the sort of more prudential wisdom of uh, a phronesis of a kind of, you know, what mm-hmm. what a union, you know, needs to do for graduate students at a university. But I mean, for universities, like big universities like Penn State or, you know, Carnegie Mellon or University of Pittsburgh, which also just had a, uh, a grad organizing campaign as well. What exactly is it that makes organizing a workplace like that different from organizing other types of workplaces and in what ways does that make it more of kind of a unique challenge do you feel
1: so honestly i mean this is something that i don't know how qualified i would be to speak on just because sure you know so much of organizing is in the doing the experimentation you know in, in the actual experience and act of it right And my only experience is really with the university. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if I can answer your question, maybe partly, I would say that there is a unique mentality, I think, that organizers often have to overcome with graduate students. And a lot of that has to do with just the ambiguous position of the Ph.D. student. So that's to say, you know, the question of whether graduate assistants are workers As far as the law is concerned, it's been a political football and it's gone back and forth, you know, several times, even in just the last decade. But I do think that, you know, regardless of what the law thinks, many graduate students do not consider themselves to be workers in the full economic sense of that term. Rather, they see themselves as primarily students, which isn't unreasonable, given, you know, that people come to do a PhD so they can receive the degree at the end of it and then go get a job elsewhere. But I also think that it's true that a lot of graduate students have a very strong attachment to the university as an institution. And specifically, they see it as very much of a paternal figure Mm. in that this is, you know, an institution that cares about you and, you know, they're going to help you develop. And then at the end of it, you know, you will be matured intellectually and professionally, and then you're ready to go off into the world. And that's a pretty common mindset, I think, whether people, you know, think of it consciously that way or not. Unfortunately, I think that virtually all experience suggests that this is not the case, that the university is a business, that your dean is your boss and not your mentor, and one of the difficult things is that you have to overcome that because that sort of paternal mindset that a lot of students have when they're doing their PhD leads them to see bad things about their job, poor working conditions, problems with their boss disrespect from you know superiors or peers all of these sorts of things they tend to process those as hardships to be endured or overcome because you got to pay your dues right right? and they see this as just a stop on the way to an upwardly mobile comfortable career Mm -hmm. and although this is true in some cases particularly in you know science and engineering fields it's increasingly not the case for a significant number of students. More and more UC PhDs taking jobs that are part time, contingent, precarious, or the mysterious alt act category. Right. Um, things that are not quite the traditional role of the professor who does research and teaches, but also not not that so I, I think that, you know, there this is to say that it is true that doing the PhD is very hard, and it probably should be. It's an advanced degree, but if there is no longer this sort of, uh, you know, comfortable track that you can put yourself on, such that when you start your PhD, if you just do everything you're told, then you're on rails until you get tenure. That if if that doesn't exist, then it would seem to be pretty reasonable that some sort of other you know, institution is necessary to prevent those five years from totally sucking, right? You know, like if you're paying dues and there's something guaranteed at the end, well, you know, maybe that's not good, but it's easier to stomach, but if you're just going to be abused and ground up like, you know, hamburger meat in a grinder mm-hmm. for the universities, for labor mill, you know, there's no reason that you should have to put up with that unless you really want to. And I think a lot of students just don't really stop to consider that it is, in fact, possible for things to be different.
2: Yeah, I think so. So this raises a really big tactical question for me. And and maybe we can wrap things up with this question. But I think one of the struggles that leftist organizers have is convincing people to accept the reality of a very substantial material problem that can sometimes feel totalizing and can contribute to cynicism. I think one of the challenges in organizing grad students is coming up against that almost love of the paternal figure of the university that, you know, this is something that we, that we all buy into and that we collectively chosen to be here. We should be excited about it. We should love it. And there can be a a sense that in telling someone, no, actually you're being abused by your employer, that that kind of Pierces the sense of pride and collective identity that they might have in that space. And I think this is also an issue for anti war and anti imperialist organizers talking about the United States, right? We need to, you know, if we want to fight for a different kind of foreign policy or a different way for the United States to operate in the world, that requires showing people the harms caused by the United States but then people come back and say well you you seem to have no love for the community that identifies itself as being a member of you know this this nation right and Mm -hmm. so I guess you know all of this is to ask what were some of the tactics that you all used at Penn State to uh, get people to see the problem without producing a kind of cynicism or without getting them to see you as someone who's an outsider. I think most of my thoughts on this have emerged after the fact. You know, thinking
1: about if I'd known when I started what I know now, what would I do differently? Right. And I I think what I would say is in both union organizing and, you know, the struggles you mentioned, the politics of anti-imperialism or anti-war organizing, which who knows? This That might be, you know, massively more relevant in the next day or two. But I, I think that the challenge is to resist what sometimes gets called a politics of recognition. And by that, I mean, there is a tendency to think about unionization as a finish line that has to be crossed, you know, because that's the way the process kind of works. You have right. to get all these card signatures. You have to get people to come to the meetings. You have to get people to turn out for the election. And if they vote the right way, then you'll have a union, right? And then, you know, that's where you want to be. But one people, I think sometimes miss that. That whole process is not designed for the benefit of workers. It's designed to manage their discontent, right? So although it's the hoops, you have to jump through. They are just that they're hoops. Mm -hmm. The things that I think were some of the greatest successes we had in the union campaign at Penn State were department level victories that got scored. I know in one department, you know, teaching assistants were being assigned recitations or discussion sections real late at night. And they would be expected to, in some cases, you know, be in seminar first thing the next morning. And so, you know, people hated that, but they didn't really have a sense of, you know, how to go about changing it or, you know, they just didn't want to make waves. So they just sort of put up with it and, you know, chalked it up to, well, everyone gets, you know, a bad semester with that. But after talking with a couple of people in that department and working out some sort of plan for them or talking about what a satisfactory solution would be, they were able to sort of take it upon themselves and they gathered enough support from their colleagues that policies were changed. Wow. They no longer had to teach those sections. So, you know, it it wasn't a matter of like getting anybody to change their worldview or get them to say a certain word, you know, so it's not a matter of conversion. Right. Right. But rather, it's it's a matter of, you know, delivering the goods. And I think now I'm of the opinion that, you know, the sorts of processes that are designed to, you know, eventually handle those sorts of material needs, it's just an indirect way to go about it. And it's really not designed to provide them for you so much as to, you know, just get you sidetracked and, you know, scupper the whole
0: thing. Right. Yeah.
1: So I think this is a long way of saying, you know, and I'll I'll risk really tipping my hand here. But, you know, in the in the German ideology, Marx says that, you know, communism is not a state of affairs. It has to be inaugurated. It's not like a goal that we have to score or something that we have to, you know, flip the switch on. Rather, he says that communism is the real movement that abolishes the present state of things. So that's to say that, you know. You don't need a union contract. You don't need a recognized union to act like one. Yeah. Because the union happens in wherever you're acting together with other people to solve a workplace problem. I think that's to say that, you know, a successful organization campaign can't begin with this very, you know, process-oriented, administrative thing because nobody gets excited about, you know, the finer points of Pennsylvania labor law,
0: <laughs> right?
1: What will get them, you know, excited and interested is being able to show them that this collective action thing fucking works. It, <laughs> it gets what needs to be done, done, because most people just don't really have that sort of experience, right? And it's yeah. a genuinely transformative experience to sort of actually be part of a collective and to know what it feels like to flex on someone that's more powerful than you. I mean, that's just not in some people's sort of, you know, range of experience. Yeah. So to be able to show that to them, have them feel that even once, you know, that's that's how you make the true believers.
0: I think that's a really beautiful shift of our frame of reference for thinking about unions and just collective action in general. And, you know, I want to talk about this for hours more, but I but yeah. I think we do have to wrap it up here. I think that's a great note to end it on. Doug, thank you so much for being with us. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug uh, your Twitter, anything, uh, any, any projects that you're working on right now?
1: You know, not so much right now. I, I do have a Twitter. I, I really like talking to other graduate students go pirates i don't know baseball fans
0: <laughs> yeah that's awesome oh, yeah, a massive yeah. comeback last night
1: <laughs> ah perfect I, I didn't get to catch it but
2: oh god it, i think it was the first time they came back down six runs in like 100 years <laughs> um, you love so, to see it. i mean you love to see it and see it. and hopefully it can be a metaphor for uh all of our struggles
0: going forward yes definitely <laughs> yeah Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollack. Reverb's co-producers at large are Caitlin Rossi, Colleen Storm, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where our handle is at ReverbCast That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T Thanks for tuning in!